Gamers. I'm Ben Roth. And I'm Lee from The Sound Test. And you're listening to Very Good Music. A VGM podcast. everyone to episode four of our fourth season showcasing some of our favorite composers and also in uh, the instances of last week and this week some of our guests and listeners favorite composers i'm really excited this week to dive into an area of the vgm scene that i don't really explore all that often i grew up on consoles like the nes and the snes and the genesis and i didn't play a whole lot of computer games growing up outside of a few dos uh, games like commander keen and doom so I was not exposed to names like Jonathan Dunn, uh, Jerome Tell, and Rob Hubbard until I started listening to VGM podcasts. And these are some of the uh, giants of systems like the Commodore 64, which is uh, an 8-bit home computer for anybody who isn't familiar, first introduced by Commodore International at the Consumer Electronics Show in January of 1982 and hitting the market later that same year, which I also uh, was introduced that year, so a little bit special to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> while the Japanese market remained dominated by systems like the PC-88 and Sharp X1, which we heard some from uh, last week on the Koshiro episode, in the UK, the C64 was a massive success, rivaled really only by the popular ZX Spectrum. And even in the U.S., the system outsold um, names like IBM and Apple and Atari. So the Commodore 64 was a big deal. Now, this episode is not all about the C64, but uh, we will definitely be touching on it. Um, But I am going to go ahead and introduce my guest, who can tell us a little more about what this episode, or who this episode, is about. Listeners, I am very, very happy to introduce my friend and uh, VGM podcasting colleague, Lee Tyrrell of The Sound Test. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me, Bedroth, and let me first say it's an honour to be here. And uh, this is a really great idea for a season that you've got going on here, focusing on different composers like this. I really like it. I realized that I like the jumping around and picking different topics, which a lot of podcasts do. But I also really liked the idea of taking sort of an over an uber topic, if you will, and focusing just on that. And it's been really rewarding. I have found out a lot about composers that I thought I knew well. And it's also going to give me the chance to explore some composers who I'm not as familiar with. Uh, Later in the season, for example, I'm going to be I'm going to have Alex Messenger on who recently uh, I believe you were a guest on his show mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about his favorite composer Mick Gordon who oh, I yeah. have enjoyed but I do not know nearly as well as Alex does so just like that um, this is going to be a learning experience because you're bringing a composer that I had never heard of before I heard him on your show Well, first off, that Mick Gordon episode is really going to be something to look forward to. Uh, But the ironic thing here is, man, that I'm very much in the same boat, that I never grew up on the uh, C64, or even I played a little bit of the ZX Spectrum when I was really, really young. But this is something that I came to through my research of video game music. And 
I just think it's undeniably some of the most interesting stuff, as well as like the whole historical edge of the whole thing, and that they were really building this stuff from the very beginning. Yes, yeah, and one of the things we talked last week about how um, Yuzo Koshiro was uh, one of the, the innovations that he did was actually custom making hardware that could make his music sound the way he really wanted it to. Uh, of course, Tim Fallon also famously did a lot of that and really almost rewrote the script for every system that he ever worked on to make his music sound the way he wanted. One of the things about the C64 that, um, from my very light research that made it stand out from its competitors is that it had some custom hardware that allowed it to create uh, superior visuals and audio compared to some of its competitors on the market. Yeah, well, the the SID chip, which was the uh, sound chip within the C64, is just legendary, and it was years and years ahead of its time. And uh, on a technical level of what was available to do on it, it wasn't bettered, if you ask me, until like the Sega Mega Drive. And I know that's kind of an mm-hmm. opinion kind of shared by Rob Hubbard, of all people. But like, yeah, like big systems. I like remember the- that, yeah. Yeah, like the Nintendo Entertainment System, who you would have expected to to put the most money into their hardware, is really years behind the SID chip in the C64, and it's kind of odd. I'm not sure why um, those innovations were pushed so big on the Commodore 64, but then it didn't really catch on in the industry. It's, it really is interesting. I remember Rob saying that when you interviewed him on your show that he, when he compared the uh, the NES sound chip to to the SID, that it just is so far behind. And when you hear a lot of these, uh, like some of the composers I mentioned, and also our focus for today and what they were able to do with that chip, it's really amazing. And when you when you hear more about the NES and SNES sound systems, it almost is it's almost crazier that there is such great music on those systems because it was almost made in spite of the hardware. Yeah, absolutely. But the SID has really been um, been seeing a resurgence here in the 21st century. I know that the demo scene is, it really has been thriving in the demo scene. And your, uh, your countryman, Michael Bridgewater, is uh, also one of the podcasters who sort of got me into the game. And he's a, a, a pretty big deal in the demo scene as well, from what I understand over there, going by the handle of uh, Mibri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm well aware of his stuff. I think we're friends on Facebook, and I'm constantly seeing him posting new stuff, and it's always amazing. It's so fantastic to hear new stuff coming out with the SID chip as well. Well, we're talking about a, a classic uh, composer for the SID chip today. Our, um, our focus for today's episode is a very special one for you, which I'll, I'll let you kind of explain why. Uh, but we're going to be talking about Ben Daglish who was born in July of 1966 uh, in England and um, has he has a lot of great work in his repertoire that I was just totally ignorant of until I heard him on your show and I did a little bit of a deep dive back then and I explored some of that music again when I um, when you mentioned bringing him onto this show and I was really excited by what I heard now I haven't listened to any of the tracks that you sent me yet because I really want my response to kind of be fresh but you've got some heavy hitters on this why don't you talk a little bit about why you decided to bring uh, Ben's work to to the episode today? Well, I have 
fairly emotional reasons as to why I choose Ben Daglish, which I think a, a fair amount of listeners, if they've heard me talk about Ben before, would be aware of. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, Bedroth, I'm going to leave that for later on in the show because there's a kind of semi-narrative running through, semi-autobiographical thing going on with the playlist. So we'll, we'll come to that as things go along. Perfect. Um, and I'll just talk purely about how when I was researching the C64 scene myself for a podcast about it featuring Ben and Rob Hubbard, I'd never heard this stuff before. It was brand new to me. And so really, Rob Hubbard and Ben Daglish were my first dips into it because I was interviewing them. And I'll just never forget how truly blown away I was by tracks like Monty on the Run, which is Rob Hubbard, but then in particular something like Trap by Ben Daglish, and actually watching it on the oscilloscope, showing how there's only three channels of audio going on here. And you can actually see the complexity of the um, of the composition behind that and some of the tricks that he's pulling to make it sound like there's more than uh, three instruments going on and i just never thought of music in that real in that way before and and vgm has kind of evolved beyond that so going that far back i was just amazed at the limitations that they had and yeah it was just the fact that ben daglish was one of the first to show me that and it just so happens that he is one of the most legendary and best regarded uh, in the industry anyway. All right, perfect. Well, I am eager to uh, start hearing this uh, sort of musical biography that you've got prepared. So uh, where are we going to start off today? Well, um, Ben Daglish is, is best known, arguably, uh, for the soundtrack to a game called uh, The Last Ninja, which he also did uh, with a guy called Anthony Lease. And it actually, he was so well known for his excellent work on The Last Ninja that it kind of irritated him. And he he found questions about it kind of annoying because he was always (laughs) getting asked about The Last Ninja and nothing else. And I remember tentatively asking him about The Last Ninja right at the end of the interview. And he was very funny about kind of, oh, that old thing again. (laughs) But it is an incredible, incredible soundtrack and and so dense that there are going to be three tracks from it across this playlist in different forms. And I thought we'd kick off strong um, with a remix, actually, by Matt Gray who also was a C64 legend and uh, did some of Last Ninja 2, if I'm not wrong, if not uh, all of Last Ninja 2. So he's uh, got a lot of pedigree himself, and he's uh, done a lot of modern-day remixes using C64 original sounds, which is really innovative, and and mixing it with modern-day production techniques. And uh, his remixes are just second to none, so I thought we'd kick off nice and strong with his remix of the Wilderness theme uh, from The Last Ninja. Thank you. 
So that was the main theme, uh, the wilderness main theme from the first Last Ninja, composed by Ben Daglish and Anthony Lees, uh, but remixed in this occasion by Matt Gray. And what an incredible remix that is, eh? Oh, it is. Um, you and I were talking a little bit while we were listening about how uh, Matt Gray, you know, he was there, but he also, uh, he was there in the 80s, but he also was still very active in the music scene, um, even up into the 90s and the 2000s. And that that mix of sensibilities is really, really evident in, in this. Um, I just... The way that it built, and then when when the melody came in, uh, it just it really takes you on a journey, and it's really cool to me. The C sixty four has such a distinctive sound, and some of those, it's very bright. Some of those trills and uh, the chimey arpeggios that you come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, my first exposure to that sound was Tim Fallen, and so I always call it the Fallen Warble. <laughs> but yeah, really love that, and I really like hearing it mixed with some of the more modern synth sounds in this. Very nice way to kick off the show. And it's worth talking a little bit about some of those technical details on the C64 because that's a big part of why some of these tunes are so impressive and it also plays in uh, into my next choice. Um, I mean, you might be aware of this yourself being um, a VGM Voyager on those uh, video game music Cs, um, <laughs> but those trills and those arpeggios are so prevalent in the C64 music and those old chip tunes because chords simply weren't possible. Uh, You could only play one note at a time on um, each channel. And sure, you could play three notes on each channel and then make a chord out of that. But then you've just got the chord. You haven't got a drum beat, you haven't got a bass line. So those channels are often dealing with other instruments. So how do you create Mm -hmm. a chord on a single channel that can only play one note? Well, you've got to go through all the individual notes in that chord super quickly. Which creates a kind of trilly sound or arpeggios. Right. Yeah, and when you add in the fact that you had to make room for sound effects as well, uh, and the fact that really, by this point, we're used to hearing really complex chords that can be played by, you know, seven or eight fingers on a piano or six strings on a guitar, that that three notes is really just not going to do it for that sort of complexity of sound. And this is a really innovative way of getting around that, that that composers like Daglish employed, and then... Um, you know, influenced later later composers as well. I like to think of it like musical magic tricks, because mm-hmm. they only had three waveforms uh, to play with, if I'm not wrong. I mean, it's been a while now since I've done this research, uh, but you had like three different waveforms available, and a white noise, which was usually uh, used for drums and things like that. And you had to like kind of creatively mix these different sounds and put different filters on them to approximate different instruments like to kind of trick the listener's mind into thinking oh that's a snare drum although in reality it's just a little bit of complete noise complete white noise (laughs) it is so this this next track that we were going to come to uh deflector I've picked this because of its C64 wizardry. This is a SID from the C64, and um, it features a cowbell prominently, which is incredible stuff. That There's no such thing as a cowbell sound to choose from on the SID chip. You have to <laughs> mix all these various waveforms together and try and find it, and that's exactly what Ben Daglish did. And because of how cool it sounds and so unique, 
it became pretty legendary on the C64 scene, like, have you heard this cowbell in Deflector? So uh, that's why I've picked this one. Very cool. I'm excited about this. It, I remember, I think I remember hearing this on your episode, which I revisited this week in, in sort of preparation for this. And yeah, that's, this is going to be a treat. So you said this is, this is from Deflector. Yes, and um, I haven't got my notes in front of me because, as I said to you, I've had to be two meters away from my laptop right now to avoid noise. Uh, but I think it's—you've um, got the track right there in front of you. Is it O One? It looks like yes. O One is uh, what's labeled yes. here. Because I mentioned that on Alex's show as well, that very often these tracks didn't even have names back then. They would just give them numbers. So yes, this is number one from Deflector. Okay, number one from Deflector, and uh, so much C64 musical wizardry going on in that. Not just the cowbell, but like throughout a lot of that, you, you could swear there are four different instrumentalists playing, but there just aren't. 
Yeah, it, the wizardry is the right the right word. This it sounds like an ensemble, like you said, and some of that percussion work is the best use of one of these older noise channels that I have ever heard. Uh, you've got such a variety of percussive sounds there, with almost like a rim shot, um, a bass hit, the uh, of course the cowbell, which uh, plays a couple of different pitches depending on whether it's that standard four on the floor or if it's throwing in a little bit of a of a flare and i mean the melody is strong some of those soloistic runs were, were really impressive and yeah this was this was really good stuff and hey check it out if you want this for free you can get it on an album called sid effects 2 uh, at c64audio.com completely for free uh, which is a, a total collection of ben daglish classics by the way so that fits in with today c64audio.com what was that album called uh sid effects 2 it's a tribute to ben daglish whole website's a complete toy box of uh, this kind of uh, retro goodness perfect we're gonna put a link to that in the show notes because i think after listening to this if they're anything like me the uh, listeners are definitely gonna want to check out some more of this stuff one thing i meant to mention after uh, that wilderness main theme is that a lot of these tracks are going to be playing for longer than you're used to i tend to um, cut things off after about the two or two and a half minute mark because that's that's pretty common for for a lot of what we play uh, when you get into some of the uh, the later stuff and the big orchestral sweeping tracks, they can go a little bit longer. But these pieces were composed so intentionally to be as long as they are that I just wouldn't feel right cutting them off. And I know that you also have done um, quite a bit of uh, preparatory work on these tracks to really make them make them perfect for what you want to do. And so um, if some of these go a little long, like our next one, just sit back and enjoy them and... Um, it's it's going to be a fun ride. Well, it's funny because music was one of the main selling points of those old C64 games back in the day. And it's interesting uh, hearing interviews with Rob Hubbard, Matt Gray, people like that, who, who say the same thing, that they were going down to the shop and buying um, C64 games based on who the composer was. And it was always a big thing. Um, to have new music by a lot of these revered composers back then so they did go long they like really made it a big event massive long tunes and and i think that also had to do with how long some of these games took to load (laughs) because some of them were loading tunes Mm mm-hmm yep I've definitely heard that on your show and on uh, Michael's Forever Sound version show a lot of a lot of loading tunes are really 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 great from from these systems yeah, and although these are obviously electronic tunes and, and there's a big electronic influence going through the whole thing, I often hear a massive prog rock influence in these old C64 tunes, which of course goes long as well. Yes, yeah. I think that prog rock in particular was was a big influence on a lot of game music. Uh, even composers like uh, Koji Kondo and Nobuo Uematsu, you hear that influence in their work as well. Absolutely. I've just started playing uh, Final Fantasy VIII again uh, for the first time. Um, for the first time, oh, yeah. like the fifth time. <laughs> um, and it's oh, the jazzy, prog, rocky, so good, man. Because mm. uh, we came close. I suggested maybe I could do a Nobuo episode because he is one of my favorite of all time. But no, I'm more than happy to do a Ben Daglish episode. You know, it's funny. I currently don't have... Um 
an Uematsu episode scheduled for this season, but he has come up on every single episode <laughs> because he is just so synonymous with, with the gaming industry. <laughs> It's, it's yeah, ridiculous. It's I, mean, I don't want to end up talking about Nobio Matsu now, because I easily could, especially considering I'm in the midst of a, a Final Fantasy obsession mm-hmm. at the moment. But we are here to, uh, to talk about uh, Daglish, and this is... Um, do, you, do you remember, again, I'm putting you on the spot, offhand, when Deflector came out? No. No, and, and <laughs> I mean, that kind of ties into what I was saying before, is that... And it's something Alex said. It was a really insightful point of Alex's. Is that in a lot of these cases, these games have kind of like disappeared into the sands of time because uh, a lot of them aren't particularly good. And as I say, the selling point was <laughs> mm-hmm. the actual tune, and it's the tune that survived in the test of time. And um, I, th- I believe you probably had to have been a big enthusiast in the eighties to even know what Deflector is. <laughs> well, based based on my uh, in depth research here by typing into uh, Wikipedia, it looks like it was published by Gremlin Graphics in nineteen eighty seven. So yeah, well that sounds about right because yeah. Gremlin Graphics uh, that was the big one for Ben. He was working with those for years. And when you think of other things that came out in eighty seven on uh, some of the other hardware, this is this is really outstanding. Yeah, well, I mean, you clearly are good with your dates, and I've always been terrible in this area. I mean, when did the Nintendo Entertainment System come out? Is that pre-NES? It's not. I mean, technically, the NES hit the market, I believe, as early as uh, 85 or 86, but kind of like with the uh, the Genesis, which the Genesis was on the market, I think, as early as 88, but it didn't really come into its own until games like Sonic the Hedgehog came out in the early 90s. And right. since Mario didn't come out until, uh, I want to say, we just had an anniversary, so I feel like I should know, but it might have been 85, because I think we did his 35th last year. So, yeah, Still, I guess... it's very much in that same kind of area. It like, is. Very early in the lifetime of the Nintendo Entertainment System, which, let me just say quickly, I love the music of, and there's so many great soundtracks. I don't mean to make this kind of a like, oh, C64 beats the NES, but it's just, it really is incredible to hear the depth that these composers were going into on the SID chip that just simply wasn't even available on later chips. It it is, and it's also, it's really kind of, in a way, it's apples and oranges, uh, because you're talking about different hardware and with any hardware it you get into it what you you get out of it what you put into it but as we've discussed the NES was uh, was a little more cumbersome from uh, from a technical standpoint and it was harder to get some of some of that complexity of sound unless you were just really really either really dug into it or if like in Koji Kondo's case if you were there kind of from the outsets and you grew up with the hardware then you know it was a little bit you had a little bit of a leg up but um, and Koji was a very intelligent uh, composer because he knew that if if you can't get too much complexity um out of the actual hardware got to get complexity out of the melody exactly yeah that's that's yeah. really his his contribution is just that melodic influence and the, yeah. this and what you hear and in, in tracks like the ones we've heard so far uh, again it, it's um it's just a, a richer tapestry of sound i think than a lot of what you hear on the nes it's it's more it's about more than just melody it's about the whole the whole composition well i think one of the things that set apart the sid chip was it, its ability to uh 
I think, switch between waveforms within the same uh, channel, and also some quite advanced filtering stuff. And I'll be honest mm-hmm. with you, man, a lot of this stuff is beyond me. <laughs> but there was some advanced filtering that you uh, could do on the SID chip. And to bring this into the track we're going to hear next, which is Alf We Descend Monty, you can actually hear some of that on some of the ending guitar solo in this. And... Um, I hope you like yourself a good C64 guitar solo, man, because it cannot be beat. So um, this one was a sequel, uh, or or one of the sequels, to uh, Monty on the Run, which is one of Rob Hubbard's big tracks and features one of the most famous uh, C64 solos of all time. And uh, interestingly enough, for this uh, sequel, Ben Daglish and Rob Hubbard teamed up for this theme that we're about to hear now, the main theme of Alf Wiedersen, Monty, is actually Rob Hubbard and Ben Daglish working together. And they made this whilst drinking in one night. And it's really, really incredible stuff. Worth mentioning quick before we get into this is how young Ben Daglish was when he started. I think he might have been as young as 14, but definitely was in the game by 16. Very, very young, made a big impression, and was very quickly able to collaborate with big names like Rob Hubbard for incredible themes like this. Alfred oh, wow. Monty. Wow. We were talking last week about how Koshiro was 18 when he started out, and that was impressive. But yeah, man, that's, that is really something. Yeah, he was like figuring this out in his bedroom with uh, his friend Tony Crowther, who actually designed a lot of the games. But sorry, just had oh, to cool. get a lot that little side point in there. No, definitely, I like the context, and we're we're, we're going to be sitting back and listening to a six minute odyssey of sound. It is like it is nice to know where we're going to be going. So, all right, one more time. This is the main theme from Alvider Saint Monty, and this was composed by uh, both uh, Ben Daglish and Rob Hubbard.
the main theme from Alf We Descend Monty by both Rob Hubbard and Ben Daglish, just two of the top composers uh, from the C64 era, so an incredible collaboration. Very, very good stuff. That was that was a fast six minutes. I was surprised by how quickly that went by, and you were not wrong about that, about that guitar. Uh, that was some very, very fun stuff. Yeah, and, and not only the guitar, but as a first and foremost bass player, they really knew how to compose some incredible bass lines back then on the C64 as well. You know, I forget sometimes, every time you mention that, I'm like, oh yeah, Lee is a bass player. <laughs> how long have you been playing the bass? Oh, well, interesting question. Um, since I was about 14, I think. I haven't thought about that in a while, yeah. That's, that's really cool. My dad got like a little bit of extra money from work one day and I think he, he said something like, I'll buy you an instrument, uh, what do you want? And my first choice was that I want to play drums. And he instantly said, no, what else? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, bass. Because I, I really didn't want to play guitar because everybody uh, else played guitar in my school. Anyone who was a musician played guitar. I was really eager to do something else. I still want to be a drummer. Yeah, it's, it's a really popular instrument here, too. When when you go to a college campus, it seems like every other corner there's somebody sitting back playing the same three chords on guitar. Uh, my dad was a guitar player in uh, in bands um, in when he was in his teens and 20s and mm-hmm. got really, really good for a while. He still kind of kicks himself for never trying to go further than he did. But uh, So I would have had a leg up, but guitar has just never really clicked for me. I thought about trying the bass at one point. Uh, did play some drums back and forth, although I'm a lot better at, at just percussion than I am at the trap set. Um, I did pick up a ukulele a few years ago, and I can pluck around fairly well on that, but that's about as close as I've come. So anybody who can play a quote-unquote real instrument, I, I always admire that. <laughs> well, ukulele is a good one, because that's, that's a great instrument to learn on. And, and interestingly enough, so is bass. So it's got a reputation, hasn't it, for being uh, simple and easy and all of that. But the, the way I always look at bass is that it is. It's easy to learn, but it's one of the most difficult instruments to master. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And um, I have played in a couple of little bands in college. Most of the musical, uh, like like band experience I've had has actually been through like church uh, music groups and things like that. And uh, the bassist at the church that my wife and I went to when um, when the kids were younger said the same thing. He was uh, he was a really good good player. And we had a couple of the youth group kids want to want to try to learn, and they very quickly found out that uh, to play it well. You really had to be in the game, you had to listen, and you had to be able to, to really support the melody and the rhythm at the same time, along with the drummer. It was, um, it's really cool stuff. But yeah, the bass line in this track also stood out to me, and you and I remarked that we heard some of that, that cowbell pop back up. Yeah, 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 and I didn't notice that until now. I've been listening to this track for a long, long time, but editing it for this uh, this show, yeah, it did pop up there, didn't it? I think uh, he'd made a bit of a name for himself by crafting that cowbell sound. Very cool, and um, Rob Hubbard is a name that, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of my, my listeners will be more familiar with, and uh, if you want to hear more, I've talked about it a couple of times, I don't remember the number of the episode but it was it was fairly early on because i think this was back in 2018 um that you did your episode with ben and rob 
Oh, well, now you mention it, I'm not sure I know the number. It's my episode. I think it's either 13 or 14, yeah. I think. Uh, but yeah, it's in season one of The Sound Test. And man, I, I am very, very proud of that episode. And, it, and it, it's all because of um, doing the research there in the moment and having interviewed these guys. I kind of realised, like, this is really special and important stuff and, and real history. Mm-hmm. Uh, to VGM, so I, I went all oh, out yeah. on that one. Nearly killed myself. We'll talk a little more about it at the end, but I definitely want to talk up your show a bit because it really is is very unique in the landscape of VGM podcasts, and uh, I'll be excited to talk about that a little bit more. So you mentioned that this is sort of a, a biographical musical journey. Um, what is the uh, what's the connection between Alfieri and Monty and this next track that we're coming up on? Well, the whole thing's loosely chronological because there are definitely some game releases that are out of time here. Yes. Uh, The chronologicalness of this um, kind of comes a lot more clear later on, but this is a good one because we're jumping here from the C64, which was Ben Daglish's main playground, to the Amiga, uh, which Ben Daglish only did a little bit of work on and, and he didn't work too much on other systems and also didn't transition into later systems like Rob Hubbard did do some work on the Sega Mega Drive. I don't think Ben Daglish did. So this is an example of some of Ben's work on another chip. Um, at le- I hope it's the Amiga. <laughs> Good God. Uh, but yeah, it, it must be the Amiga because otherwise I wouldn't be so confident about it. And this is Federation of Free Traders, um, which is just... I'm not sure there's all that much depth or interesting stuff to talk about here besides it's just one of my favourite tunes of his of all time however it does show how goddy he was at translating his flute playing into coded music because he was a flute player uh, first and foremost uh, since we've been talking about instruments alright well yeah we'll definitely talk a little more about that when we come back from uh, Federation of Free Traders Yeah. 
Okay, so definitely from the Amiga, Federation of Free Traders, again by Ben Daglish, is just one of my all-time favourite tracks of his. And I'm glad we have been able to figure out that it's the Amiga, because as I say, now I can talk about what's going on a little bit. So the Amiga was sort of the uh, the sequel system to the C64, right? This was the next Commodore uh, PC. In many ways, yeah. And uh, um, controversial in many ways as well, because several people back then um, were unhappy with the direction it was going sound-wise and preferred uh, this really unique sound of the SID chip. But then, of course, there was the flip side of people who accepted that audio was going to evolve and go in different directions because, of mm-hmm. course, this has got a completely different sound. Yeah, it does. You and I were remarking on that, that even to my my much less trained ear, I heard that uh, it seemed like there was more going on with this. And it you came a little closer to approximating some real instruments like that. That trumpet sounded, it sounded like a MIDI trumpet. <laughs> and well, um, yeah, and then the guitar uh, sounded a little closer to, to the real thing. If I'm not wrong, the Paula chip in the Amiga used uh, four channels rather than three. So you're right, it did have uh, an extra channel. And it also worked completely differently. Rather than using waveforms and those kind of really simplistic electronics that things like the SID chip and the NES work with, we're moving into sample-based technology now. So you are absolutely right. And uh, those samples could really be anything. They could be samples of waveforms, they could be samples of a keyboard, they could even be samples of Ben Daglish's real playing, but they'd have to be shifted down in quality a massive amount, mm-hmm. and you would be able to, to hear that, and it's got a kind of strange ghostly sound when you do that. And I believe that might be what's going on with some of the flute stuff at the end of that, because as I said, Ben Daglish is a flute player. I think he sneaked some real stuff in there, just really shifted down. That's really cool. My uh, my oldest daughter, uh, who our listeners know as Dusklights, uh, is also a flute player, and so that'll be fun. I'll have to see if I can find some some Ben Daglish performance to, to play for her, give her a taste of that. Absolutely. Well, I can definitely give you uh, the one to show her. I mean, we've got the audio for it later on, for sure. Oh, excellent. But I can send you a video so she can see it. Very cool. So this was fun. Now, have you actually played any of the games on the list tonight? Oh, God, uh, let me go through them. <laughs> I don't think I have. And uh, I do actually own a C64. And I own... Um, like a good 30 games I got a really cool bundle off a friend of mine um, but I'm missing a, a specific wire because of course now we're all flat screen LCD TVs they haven't got the oh. right inputs for yep. you know, Commodore 64 so yeah <laughs> I still need to get that adapter off the internet I hear that wow yeah and there's uh, there have been a few episodes of mine where I haven't played anything on the list either but it's you know it's a testament that we're um the two of us, as we mentioned uh, earlier, closer to the top of the show, just don't have a whole lot of personal experience with the system, and yet this music has made such an impact, especially especially on you, but just in my experience on on the video game music scene as well. You just can't really talk about video game music without without exploring this. So, I mean, um, I have watched a few Let's Plays, and I mean full Let's Plays on YouTube of old Commodore C64 and ZX Spectrum games. As I say, I've got a little bit of a memory playing ZX Spectrum games as a super young kid. 
And I said this on Alex's show as well. Unfortunately, a lot of these games just haven't aged well. And they now just kind of frustration fests. And you can see that in, in streams where modern day players just kind of can't figure out how to do it anymore. And, and the convention of the whole thing, the pacing of the whole thing is completely different. I think it's kind of a tough ask to ask people to go that far back, really. It is. And you even find that uh, this is reminding me of when I was a kid, there was an NES game that is famously just just terrible. It does not play well at all. And yet, at the time, it was one of my, my favorites because I didn't know any better. I played it enough that I got a handle on it, and that's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure on the NES, which I would not recommend that right. anybody go back and try to play. It's, it's a horrible game. <laughs> but, you know, when you're that age and that's what you have, that's what you learn how to play. And it's it is it's it's but it's a good thing despite the fact that the games haven't aged that well that this uh, this amazing music has still survived and is still being celebrated even now yeah and it says a lot about um, the effort that these composers were putting in and again kind of leans into that thing that they were the main selling point for a lot of these games now the last ninja from what you said um, actually was uh, was popular even even as a game that it, it was it was one of the more would you say that it was maybe one of the better or more um more well-loved games on the system or is it yes, really just yeah. in his okay no the game itself is is very beloved yes and um i think it takes an isometric perspective which always helps in those old games uh, yeah and uh yeah it's, it's just really packed with genuinely good gameplay and, and some beautiful graphics and uh, spawned a good couple of sequels as well so yeah very very well received very well loved and i think that's one of the main reasons why um ben daglish is so strongly associated with it because the music for it is great but it's no better than anything else in his catalogue. So it's probably just that the game itself mm. was so unbelievably popular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if, I, uh, if I'm reading the list right, we're actually coming up on our second Last Ninja track. This is another kind of long one. This one approaches six minutes. Are you ready to move forward on the playlist? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is a classical guitar arrangement of the main theme from The Wastelands by a very, very good friend of mine called uh, Jamie Maxwell's cool little story to tell here, in that he just did this cover off his own back as a Ben Daglish fan, arranging the tune for classical guitar, and uh, actually was able to get a comment from Ben Daglish on the video on YouTube saying what great work that he did. And uh, I guess this is where we're gonna have to reveal a little bit of the sadness that comes with Ben Daglish, but we'll go into more depth of it later on that not too long after my interview with Ben, he unfortunately passed away, which kind of locked him into me even deeper than just loving his music. Mm -hmm. I was the last person to interview him. And uh, I really wanted to go all out with the podcast as I was editing it, finalizing it after his death. And uh, I came across this classical guitar arrangement of the Last Ninja uh, theme, which is just outstandingly beautiful. It really is just outstandingly beautiful and, and seemed perfect for me to be the closing section of the podcast, which it sounds kind of twee to say it, but it, it's Ben Daglish's final public words to the world um, out there on the record. And uh, so I really wanted it to be 
good and emotional and also kind of reflect him. This tune was perfect for that. I asked for permission to use it. Jamie let me use it. And um, we've become very, very good friends ever since. That is very cool, and it's a you know it's an honor to have this on on my show as well. And I do encourage everyone again go and check it out. the uh, The ending of that episode, I, th- I think that you you did a really great job. It came across exactly how you intended it to. It was a really powerful moment at this point. Well, I really appreciate that because, um, again, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but I was actually editing the episode itself uh, when I minimized, I think it was Microsoft Word, I was working on the script and I minimized it and there was sat Facebook, which re-uploaded itself with the news and it was just like, what? I was literally just editing his words and excited at the idea of sending the final thing to him. Unbelievable. Well, let's go ahead and... um Take a second, and we are going to listen to, uh, you said this is the Wastelands main theme from The Last Ninja, a classical guitar cover by Jamie Maxwell. Correct.
the main theme from the Wastelands from Last Ninja, another Ben Daglish classic, this time rendered for the classical guitar by Jamie Maxwell. And what a beautiful rendition that it is. That was so nice. I love a good classical guitar piece. And this is... Um, I'm going to have to go back now and listen to the original and then listen to the cover so I can hear where it came from. But this was just beautiful. Really great melody. Yeah, the the original's like strangely electronic once you've heard that for the first time. It is like um, a lot. Well, it's a C64 tune Mm -hmm. and it's got all those melodies there and it's really cool. But after you've heard the uh, classical guitar arrangement, which is just so amazing, it almost sounds like the original Last Ninja version is like a Commodore 64 version of that. If you know (laughs) what I mean. Mm -hmm. I do. I do. And. I can't remember if we mentioned it earlier while we were recording or uh, if it was more off the record, but it when you go back and listen to some of these older systems, uh, I'll be the first to say that a lot of the NES tunes that I just love can be a little bit grating to listen to uh, when you compare them to the more modern modern sounds. But there's a there's a nostalgia in it, and there is also just a you have to marvel at what these these technical wizards were able to do with the sound of the time and. I'm of the camp that believes that limitation breeds creativity, that when you when you have fewer things to work with, you have to work harder to really make them sing. And I think that that really shows in stuff like this. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's uh, one of the reasons why um, I love C64 music so much and Amiga as well. There's a simplicity also, though, to, uh, to, to Jamie's cover because it's it is not heavily... Um, orchestrated. There's uh, the guitar and some some background synth and some percussion, and it's just a really, really straightforward um, it feels like a really straightforward rendition of this classic tune. Very, very nice. Yeah, it is, but it's almost like, I mean, th- those melodies are just so lovely, you don't need to uh, do too much with them. Uh, but th- there are a lot of versions of this tune. I think it's, it's one of the key tunes from The Last Ninja, which is one of the key um, games in Ben Daglish's bibliography. Mm. So yeah, there are lots of different versions of this. Orchestral, I think there are some metal versions by Fast Loaders, who we mentioned off the record earlier on as well. Yeah, it's a classic. Very cool. Yeah, and you, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the fast loaders on the episode. So the fast loaders are, it, would it be, are they like a C64 cover band or just an older uh, PC music cover band? Well, I mean, it's C64 first and foremost, for sure. Uh, but yeah, they'll, they'll play stuff from the Amiga as well and from uh, related systems from the time, definitely. I'm actually, I've got my CD collection right to my left and I'm looking at their three CD Amiga Rocks. Uh, oh, CD, cool. which is it's fantastic. It's just brilliant. Yeah, Fast Loaders are well worth looking into, and I've been lucky enough to see them live just before COVID kicked off. I'm always interested in um, exploring more cover bands and artists because there, there are so many great ones out there, so I'll definitely be looking into the Fast Loaders. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're kind of continuing with another cover now that I'm a little bit sheepish about, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, tell me about it. Okay, well, um, this is a version of... Well, we've played an absolute classic by Ben Daglish. We've played lots of classics. This, I think, is his most underrated tune. And when I last looked on YouTube, it had something stupid like 100 listens, despite being uploaded four years ago or something. Oh, but man. for me, 
yeah, it blew me away straight away the first time I heard it. And it was a really early tune to make me fall in love with the music of the C64 and Ben Daglish, Return of the Mutant Camels. And I've done a little bit of research on the game in the past as well and figured out that it's actually like a really small game. I think it might have even come out for free with a magazine or something. It's a really obscure little release and its music hasn't survived as well as some of his uh, other themes. But this is a cover of that by me and i'm sorry to be so like maybe like no no not i don't at know all. I, i'm trying to be arrogant but it's just since we're doing the whole ben daglish thing this is the only vgm cover that i've ever done on my own i thought we'll throw it in there i mean we could play the original return of the mutant camels but this has just so happened to drop on spotify today so you know i think it's absolutely fitting because we were, the whole reason we're talking about Ben is because he's so special to you and you made this cover because because of that and I think it, it fits right in this is this is sort of a tribute to to his memory and I think that including a tribute of yours within this tribute it's a uh, it's it's definitely fitting and I'm glad to have some of your work on here you and I were just talking earlier on discord today about uh, about some of what you have to offer on Spotify and so I'll be mm-hmm. I'll be excited for people to hear some some of that so is this a like a main theme or w- was there was there only one tune in return of the mutant camels or yeah again my research has actually been unable to tell me this definitively because it's been really hard to find this game it was a sequel to a much more popular game and, and that's what you come across all the time you just can't find so much about the sequel so oh, wow. I believe this was probably the menu theme. A lot of these games had loading themes, menu themes, and then maybe one gameplay tune. I think it's a menu theme, if I had to guess. Okay. Yeah, it's just the fact that I fell in love with it when I first heard it, and uh, it's quite simple and slow, and I'm not the world's best musician, so it seemed like a good one to attack. Follows Jamie Maxwell's cool guitar little rendition. This is a weird kind of twangy guitar rendition. I hope you guys like it, and if you do, check out the original, because it's amazing. All right, so we're going to listen to uh, what is probably a menu theme covered by uh, our special guest, Lee Tyrrell, from Return of the Mutant Camels. Thank you. 
So that's my version of uh, Return of the Mutant Camels by Ben Daglish. It's actually an old traditional tune, but I can't for the life of me discover what it is. I've been trying to research that for ages. So if anybody can tell me, I'd love to find out. Uh, but my version is just called Mutant Camels, and it has just come out on Spotify if you'd like to check that out. This is really nice. That's That's some good sound you've got there. Thank you, man. The whole project is like kind of um, quite messy deliberately. And um, the whole idea was I, w- I wanted it to kind of sound like some old dusty record that you might find in an abandoned building from some band that nobody's heard of. And it's kind of like, what is this? Oh, that comes across. Yeah, that's kind sure. of what I was going for. Some strange broken cassette that you'll find in the street that's unlabeled, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. You just got to hear what's on it. Yeah. And it's strange and messy, but also kind of beautiful. That's what I was going for. Definitely comes across. And I, I, I have a real soft spot just from growing up listening to my dad play acoustic guitar all the time. Uh, guitar recordings when you can can hear yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fingers sliding up and down the strings. That's really something for me. I like it a lot. I love that kind of Western uh, Ennio Morricone mm-hmm. kind of guitar playing style. It is is kind of my style, really. I think because I play guitar too, but I'm very much a bass player first, and it informs a lot of my musical thinking. So I kind of I do approach guitar very similarly to a bass. There's a level of focus here and kind of a directness that I that I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying because this is this feels like just from my experience playing with musicians this feels like guitar uh sort of interpreted by a bass player yeah. that you're not doing a lot of deep complex chords it's it's about it's about the melody which is also makes it fitting that it's for a, it's for a cover of an older an older song that didn't have a whole lot happening well having said that like deep complex chords is definitely a thing of mine and i'm very big on that but it's like this is actually um it's actually a very literal translation of the original sid so like everything is like one note just like the sid is i think because i think on the original sid it's just got the bass line and uh two uh, different melodic lines running the whole time which is uh two different guitars and uh, there is no drums the, I was going to say, how did you do the percussion on this? The, that sort of light. Are you playing that on the guitar? No, I've got I've got a uh, bongo actually that I bought from um, South Africa, and it's like it's it's, oh. it's actually like a really authentic like antelope skin bongo, and it sounds amazing. So I just recorded. Very cool. Yeah, I recorded four different takes of me just improvising on it, mixed that in, and I've also got this strange shaker thing that I, my mum bought for me and I've got no idea where it's come from it's, it's got like shells around the side of it and that's that thing doing that oh, cool. kind of thing very nicely done again I just kind of sat and did it alright very cool and uh, of course we will have a link to Lee's Spotify in the show notes and this was just oh it was so nice very cool stuff I really really appreciate that man it's uh it's from an album, well, a kind of mini album that takes that whole kind of approach where that's the sound I was going for uh, across the whole album. But interestingly enough, I think it's also uh, comes like the whole kind of messy, kind of dark found approach and the whole thing kind of comes from the way I work. And 
it's kind of tough to get into, but it's almost like a, a kind of mental health awareness thing. These kinds of things should be talked about, I think. It's, it's a direct result of my suffering from ADHD. Talk about that a little bit, because you're right. I think that it's, it is important. Um, and it, so how, how does, uh, how does your, your art sort of grow out of your, your coping with ADHD? Well, it's just in this particular case that uh, the ADHD specifically, in my case, stops me from being able to focus on anything long term or complete a project long term. Say, uh, record, record a song or an album over a long period of time and really, truly perfect it, which I think production wise, I probably do have the ability to do. But mental health wise, I don't. So I have to find ways to make it interesting to do it all that night, right there that night, doesn't matter how messy it is. And reasons to make that work and and for the sound to still be good or interesting in some way. So it's not just, oh, I've just thrown this together in a night. Because it's simply because if I don't throw it together in a night, nothing's going to ever be finished. That's very cool. It's And so you get this this really... I would say it's polished, but it is polished in this way that uh, it, it intentionally comes across as something that's a l- that's less. Uh, I'm really having a tough time. I like with to my, think the record- con. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I like to think uh, one of the sounds I'm going for is quite immediate, immediate and and intimate. Yes, and and to bring things back to Ben Daglitch because I really don't just want to talk about my own music. There was very much a kind of of channeling thing going on, or, or like I was really thinking about him and what it means to be connected to him in such a strange way as to have his last words in the public on my podcast and all of that kind of thing. I feel a kind of strange connection with him and there was definitely some channeling going on there. So very, very cool. When did you um, when did you do this? This was uh, last year, not too long before Christmas, I don't think. Before I've now started okay. getting involved in all my one-night VGM stuff, which, you know, that might help explain some of that, actually. I'm kind of glad to, to get that off my chest because I've been doing all this one-night VGM stuff, and the reason why it is one-night VGM is the same reason. It has to be done right then and there. Well, and that level of immediacy is something that you hear also in, uh, you know, in things like game jams and... Um, this is it's an important thing to talk about because a lot of people in our generation and especially in in the newer generation uh adhd is um it's it's definitely a big deal and finding a way to uh, to cope for cope with it that also gives you the ability to sort of put something out there that other people can enjoy i think is a really great thing to to have accomplished so well so the, hats the- off to you man this was really good these struggles are real, and it's not something I ever intended to with this podcast, but it's nice to just, if there's anybody out there listening to this who, who struggles with the same things, then you're not alone. And that's kind of uh, all I wanted to say. But I can bring this back to C64 music and old school composers <laughs> and things like that. And that the one night VG, uh, VGM thing and the whole doing things in one night and trying to capture things right then and there isn't... It isn't just ADHD. So there's also a conscious side of it of, well, that's what they did. 
It was Ben Daglish, it is. Rob Hubbard. Yeah. They did Alf Weed and Monty in one night. Yeah. yeah. Um, Barry Leach, when I interviewed him, uh, did a lot of his incredible music in one night. Did it in the morning. Uh, did a couple of tracks in the morning before doing a couple of tracks in the afternoon. And I that's another limitation isn't it you were talking about limitations earlier on time is another limitation and really force mm-hmm. you to focus in on something and, and actually finish it absolutely yeah um that's been my problem as well a lot of projects i've had i didn't finish them because i tried to do that um and i tried to set up this huge thing and then i just got overwhelmed and so for me that doing a podcast is the perfect thing to sort of arrest that tendency because it's all very piecemeal and I also you know I have my my partner in uh, in Shukapal and that keeps me focused as well so mm-hmm. um, yeah definitely again lim- limitation breeds creativity and I definitely think so so this next track is another one. Uh, when I saw Mutant Camels on the list, I thought, oh, well, that one's going to be fun to uh, talk about. This next title is also, um, th- there's a kind of a silliness to it that I like. What is the story with William Wobbler? Yeah, this is uh, number two, coming back to numbered titles from uh, William Wobbler. And I've picked this one very specifically because uh, a lot of the tracks we've heard so far have had a bit of a dark edge to them, for sure. And strangely, that doesn't quite represent what Ben was known for. Ben had a nickname, uh, which was Bouncy Ben, because a lot of his tracks and a lot of his themes were so playful and uh, almost childlike at times um, in that bouncy quality. And we haven't really had a tune that fully shows that off yet. A lot of them have been in the minor key and and, and pretty dark. So this is a classic uh, Bouncy Ben tune uh, to come off the back of, which I recognise is quite a morose cover uh, on my part, uh, to try and cheer people up a bit. And it's also, as you've said, we've had some big, long six minutes. This one's only about two and a half minutes, I think. So it's just quick, snap, classic, bouncy Ben, before we get into uh, some more serious topics uh, to end the show. Excellent. All right, let's get into it. Thank you. 
Number two, again, my favourite numbered titles from William Wobbler, Ben Daglish, classic Bouncy Ben. Bouncy is the perfect word. I couldn't sit still while that was on. And uh, it is it is interesting. I I... I am a sucker for melancholy tunes, and so I really loved, like, uh, Jamie's cover and your cover, and uh, the sort of dark prog sound from earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned this is what he's he's well known for, and this is a lot of fun. Uh, this <laughs> really, really great stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of tracks in uh, in Ben's catalogue that follow this kind of formula, and, and that, that is what he was known for in the 80s, but... I'm glad that you say that you like that kind of moody sound too, because that's that's what I'm attracted to as well. So that might re- the playlist might reflect me more than Ben so far. <laughs> well, that's all right. This is um, as much about you know why my guests, what my guests love about these composers as as it is. Um, it's it's really more more that than trying to fit their whole repertoire into into a ten track playlist because that's just impossible and yeah. uh, everybody has their own um, reasons for approaching some of these composers and so I think that I think that that, that is fitting and uh, gives us more to talk about. But yeah, absolutely. So and uh, I do have a particular soft spot for this tune from William Wobbler that I wanted to bring up, which is my ex-co-host. I was going to say, yeah, go ahead. My uh, ex-co-host on my old, old podcast, Soundtask Live, which hopefully is coming back soon, uh, whenever I can. Dale Fowler, who only stopped doing it with me because he's had to move down to London. Actually, he's a busy boy with work now; he's unable to do it with me. But he did it uh, by my side for about a year. And he hasn't got the history of uh, VGM love and devotion that you and I have. And he was falling in love with it through the show, which is one of the reasons why I had him as my co-host, because I wanted to get his completely raw reactions. Um, He came along with me to the 8-Bit Symphony, which was when a lot of uh, classic C64 tunes were rendered with a huge orchestra. Um, I'm not sure whether it was for the first time, but it felt like it was such a huge event. And uh, they played William Wobbler, and he just adored it. And it kind of sums up his personality, that bouncy kind of silly carefreeness. (laughs) And uh, and William Wobbler was a big one for Dale, my co-host, falling in love for, uh, with VGM, and it was just wonderful to see that live on his face. I'll bet that's very cool, very cool story, and I love that dynamic of somebody who's uh, a little bit more new to the scene or is discovering things for the first time. That's maybe one of the things I enjoy the most about doing this with with my kid is that I'm getting to sort of share their first experience in this and that's really cool i'm glad that that you and he have had that uh, even if for only a short time that now you'll have that as a memory that you'll be able to uh, just sort of share that's really neat well the sound test live will definitely be back uh, as soon as i possibly can and uh, i'm pretty sure dale will be popping up um, up on it a few times we've been playing rocket league with each other obsessively lately and uh, sound test has come up a couple of times i know he'd like to I'm really eager for it. So I know you've been uh, um, you've been dealing with some things on the, on the hiatus, but I am excited for just personally for you and also just selfishly for me because I love the show so much. I'm excited for it to come back. So. Yeah, once it does, <laughs> there's going to be so much. Uh, live show was always running, and God knows I've still got so many more interviews to publish. It's paining me that I'm not able to publish them, but as soon as I can, I will. Well, while we're racing toward the return of the sound test, uh, our next track 
is not as fun as that. A race to the debt. That almost sounds like it's a bad translation of a Japanese name. What is the story <laughs> behind this track? <laughs> now, this is a really interesting one because we mentioned earlier on in the podcast that um, Ben Daglish didn't transition so much to later systems. You find that his catalogue on the C64 is absolutely massive, but you don't see his name popping up on the Super Nintendo or the Mega Drive, and, and after that, certainly not. Um, he kind of transitioned more into doing more kind of live work, and I think he might have been a teacher on the side. But this is one of his later compositions, actually from the soundtrack to a film. Oh, very cool. And the film in question in this case is uh, From Bedrooms to Billions, which is actually a documentary about the whole kind of British gaming scene from 1979, I think a little bit up to today. And it's got all kinds of really cool interviews in there. And I'm pretty sure Ben Daglish is featured in there at some point. But interestingly enough, he did some of the music to the actual soundtrack, original music for the soundtrack. I think Rob Hubbard did as well. And I think a few other of those classic C64 composers got involved with the soundtrack. But this is one of his tunes from that soundtrack. So it's later Ben Daglish and it is very electronic. It's almost like being able to hear Ben Daglish compose for something like the PlayStation 1 or something like that. It's fascinating stuff, and again, some great bass going on in this. Once again, from the British documentary Bedrooms to Billions, this is Ben Daglish's piece, Race to the Debt.
Race to the Dead from the soundtrack to From Bedrooms to Billions, uh, which, as I say, is full of interesting music from a variety of composers uh, from the time, I believe. Yeah, it looks really interesting. I uh, I have not seen this, and I'm going to have to um, have to dig into it. It's because uh, this is a, a scene, like I said, that I'm definitely going to want to learn learn more about. But this is very cool. Uh, I noticed that the movie came out in 2014, and so this is definitely much more recent. And it's it's fun hearing what he is what he does with more um, with more instruments with a little bit less limitation. But he definitely still has that electronic sensibility that he's bringing to this yeah and 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 i didn't realize that it was that late i thought the film was a lot earlier so that must be one of his last uh public compositions really because he wasn't releasing all that much around that time there was a lot of live work but not new stuff so live work is uh, you've you've touched on it a little bit um that's and I saw actually a couple of pictures when I was doing my research of him him doing some live stuff. And now that I think on it, I think one of those was of him playing playing flute. And so mm-hmm. um, I must have either that didn't register with me or it just because uh, when you mentioned flute earlier, I was caught a little bit by surprise. So, <laughs> um, but you mentioned that we're going to be hearing something from him live on uh, on the episode here uh, here toward the end is that right yeah absolutely that's the next track that's serendipity for you oh yeah very cool so we are going from 2014 to uh, a live performance in 2016 uh, do you want to talk a little about what's coming up well this is where we return to some of the sadness of, of the fact that uh, ben passed away and i feel kind of stupid because i didn't see it coming and didn't know it was going to happen but those closest to ben of course did and uh, during this recording, Ben was actually going through chemotherapy uh, for what eventually took his life, unfortunately. Mm. And this is an unbelievably emotional performance. Uh, as Chris Abbott put it, who uh, was heavily involved in the 8-bit symphony and we'll come to him soon. As Chris Abbott put it, there wasn't a dry eye in the house uh, because of the context of the whole thing. And he's playing alongside the fast loaders who we mentioned earlier on, who are providing the guitar accompaniments and, and things like that. Oh, wow. I cannot begin to tell you how special this recording is. And you're going to have to hear it for yourself. I'm just trying to get you excited. This is like some of his last musical expressions to the world. And he knows it. And he's putting that into his music. And it's just outstanding. And knowing that, it's tough to come out of it with a dry eye, it is. So good luck with that one. And uh, this is the Wasteland's Loader, if I'm not wrong. Please remind me, Bedrock, because I haven't got the uh, list in front of me. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, The Wasteland's Loader, and you've got it labeled as Underworld. Is that where he played it? Yes, yes, absolutely. So Wasteland's Loader from The Last Ninja. Again, uh, this was played live at Underworld in 2016.
Wastelands Loader, composed by Ben Daglish, but I believe with Anthony Lees, but certainly performed by Ben Daglish right there. Absolutely outstanding, alongside the Fast Loaders. That was incredible. Um, while we were talking, I pulled up the video on YouTube, and I I love that instrument. Is that a, that That's an Irish whistle of some kind, I believe, right? Yeah, you've got me scared now because I've been saying flute all this time, but it might turn out that I'm totally wrong. <laughs> it's well, that, I mean, <laughs> certainly something that you blow into. I was talking to uh, to Brian last week, and there's a Koshiro track from Puzzle and Dragons X that relies heavily on a Japanese flute. And I'm sure it's not really a flute, but that's what we called it. It's just, you know, it is what it is. But whatever that, that instrument is, um, at one time I think I heard an Irish pen whistle or something like that, but... I, I absolutely adore it, and you were right. I mean, you can you can see it in the video, but just in the expression of the instruments, there's this plaintive sound to the playing that is is just. I mean, melancholy is just the first step in describing that sound. Really, really fantastic pick for 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 the show. It just it it, it certainly sounds to me that that he knew there wasn't long left and he's gonna scream one last time into the musical abyss and uh, how beautiful it is um but you know we've talked about ben being bouncy ben and he was an endlessly uplifting figure he was such a uh, friendly man always cheerful always unbelievably funny so the last thing he would want is some dark cloud over things. So I always try uh, to move things back in that bouncy direction uh, with Ben. So with that in mind, I don't think he'd mind me being so self-deprecated as to say, <laughs> let's find out if Ben Daglish found flute on, played flute or not, because now I'm scared. So do a little bit of research for me, Bedroth, right here yeah. now, live on the show. I Did Ben Daglish play flute in any capacity? <laughs> because if not, I've got to get prepared to make some apologies here. I'll have to take a look. Like I said, I'm sure I saw... Okay, yeah, I did. I saw this picture. Um, he learned several instruments, including flute, piano, yes. and guitar. He played with the school's orchestra as a chief percussionist and later as a conductor. And yeah, there's a, an image right here. When you type in Google, did Ben Daglish play the flute? Yeah, he's playing a <laughs> flute for certain. Excellent. <laughs> yes, that's all I wanted to know. Excellent. I'm not completely wrong. Uh, but yeah, no, you are right. There's some kind of whistle going on on that live performance instead, I think. I'm going to need to look deeper into that because I, I put the video on myself last night, but as soon as the music started, I just closed my eyes, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'll have a link to the video in the show notes as well. I actually just added it while we were talking. It's so good. And uh, um, you... Uh, you mentioned that you don't. He he wouldn't have wanted to to hang, you know, to, us to hang around with the dark cloud over us. And mm -hmm. this next song is uh, um, the longest one that we're going to be playing. It's also we mentioned it a couple of times, and I think that this is this is also one of his his better known pieces from from the research that I did. And since on a, on my show we're actually going to be talking after this last music, and then we'll finish with um with a, a play out of the theme song. Um, I'd like to go ahead and get to this because I feel like I'm going to have some things to say. Okay. Tell me about Trap. 
Okay. Trap is pretty much uh, Ben Daglish's key tune. It's not actually from a C64 game. It's uh, from a C64 demo, which you've mentioned the demo scene before. That's where people are just like making a little animation to show off uh, what the system can do. It's not even a game. And he composed this to go with uh, a demo. Uh, it's kind of like an animation of in space of planets moving around each other and getting invaded and things like that. So he's created this long, I think it's nearly nine minute space opera epic to go with it that really does push the C64 to its complete limits and not only that but Ben Daglish's compositional ability to his complete limits because he very much approached this as composing for an orchestra which knowing that he only had three channels of sound to play with that he actually was able to emulate an orchestra pretty convincingly is unbelievably impressive. But we had a chronological twist to today's show, and this is not the original C64 Trap. This is the 8-bit symphony orchestral rendition of Trap that unfortunately Ben never actually got to hear. But he did work on it alongside Chris Abbott, who uh, helped me provide this to the show today. He was involved in pretty much all of the 8-Bit Symphony. And it's probably the best celebration of Ben Daglish's music that I can think of. Well, then we're not going to waste any more time. Let's listen to the 8-Bit Symphony Orchestra's rendition of Trap by Ben Daglish.
The amazing 8-bit symphony version of Trap, written by Ben Daglish, of course. Uh, I think it's the Czech Symphony Orchestra recorded on that, actually. And uh, it's just so incredible to hear it in that full orchestral form, just like Ben had in mind when he only had three channels of audio uh, to play with. I would have loved to hear that. 
Oh, that's it's so great to um, think of these composers having a chance to finally realize what was in their minds all this time. I talked about that back on the Mitsuda episode and how in 2015 he released a compilation of tracks from Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross and actually said that those were the ideas he'd had in mind since 1995. And that was 20 years. This was um, the 30th anniversary of the writing of Trap because it looks like this came out... Oh, I'm thinking... Okay, so the Underworld performance was 2016. This was... um, I'm not sure. Do you know when the 8-Bit Symphony uh, performed this for the first time? Well, I ought to know because uh, I was <laughs> some kind of peripherally involved. Um, it, <laughs> I, the CD came out last year in 2020, okay. if I'm not wrong. Uh, but it was first performed uh, properly in front of an audience in 2019 in Hull which is actually only about half an hour's drive away from where I live, fortunately, oh, wow. and is the hometown of Rob Hubbard. So, um, okay. yeah, that was really cool. And I was very lucky okay. to be there. It was incredible to hear that uh, rend- rendered bet. live like that for the first time. Yeah, And I was... know what that meant to Rob Hubbard, as you said earlier, sorry. Uh, no, about that's okay, go ahead. These composers getting to hear it like this. I know what it meant to Rob Hubbard and, and how he was involved as well in the arrangements of it, just like Ben was before he, he passed away. So, yeah, there's no doubt about how much he would have adored to hear that. And for 2019, that means this was 33 years after Ben wrote the original Trap uh, a demo tune. And in 1986, he would have turned. 20 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, coming out someone, with things like that. Someone who's pushing 40, the idea of someone who is 20 coming out with something like this is just mind-blowing. It's but for um, you know, people like my 16-year-old co-host who's doing his own composition, that has to be inspiring, you know, that somebody that age can already be be so um, proficient as to do something like this. Absolutely. And I made the um I made the connection to The Planets by Gustav Holst. Uh, this is really almost like uh, Ben's own sort of Planets symphony. It's got its own movements and everything, and it, it changes uh, from, from part to part. And um, I've talked before on the show about how undeniable the influence of Holst is on all of the popular music that came after. And this is uh, definitely a fitting sort of entry in that tradition. Such a great tune. Holst is in there for sure, but as we mentioned while we were listening to it, there, there's also that sneaky little hidden reference to uh, War of the Worlds in there as well, which is always nice. Yep. I can't remember who... Do you know? I'm going to have to look it up. Who composed the War of the Worlds score? Oh yeah, Jeff Wayne. I'm obsessed. I am obsessed with that CD, my friend. Double CD, actually. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Film is an area that I I don't know as well as um, video games. Obviously, oh, no, I mean this this is the um, think- the musical version of War of the Worlds, which is purely purely musical. It's just on the CD. It's not from a film or anything like that. Oh, okay. Very cool. Very cool. So you should right. definitely check it out if you like your prog rock, my friend. It's classic, classic prog rock, cheesy version of the War of the Worlds story, just in music. <laughs> Well, that sounds great. I love, I love those kinds of things where it's you have a musical narrative, things like this, and uh, even, even a, a, here's a throwback, Peter and the Wolf, and things like that. It's oh, really cool I stuff. I love Peter and the Wolf. 
I love Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> I borderline ripped it off for some music that I worked on lately. So yeah, I love that theme. <laughs> well, I love this theme, man. This was an epic way to to close things out, and really, it, it's it's fun because it's from his early compositional years. But this particular rendition is one of the last things that he worked on, and so it's a perfect sort of bookend, and uh, really kind of fitting to be his his magnum opus here on the episode today. Very, yeah, really, really very good epic stuff. Too. Well, this this has been as enjoyable as I thought it would be. This has been a rewarding conversation. I'm really glad to have explored this, this part of the VGM landscape that I don't get to, uh, don't get to venture into very often. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time, as you know. And so you mentioned at the top of the show that you're honored to be here. The honor is definitely mine. And Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to say about about Ben that we haven't fit into the last two hours? Well, I'd like to quickly say thank you. That's all so sweet of you. And it really it really is an honor to be here, man. And this is actually our first time talking uh, with our voices. And we've always gotten on so well in DMs. I knew it would go well. So it's been great uh, to do. And thank you again for having me on. Uh, as for Ben... Uh, no, I just hope it's given you a good, uh, given any listeners who hasn't listened to this kind of thing, a good look into the C64, wanted to find out more about it. And for me, there's a lot of C64 composers I could have looked at. Rob Hubbard, I tell you, I was on the edge of looking at Jerome Tell, because I'm obsessed with that man's music. But at the end it's of the so day, good. it really is. Ben Daglish seemed to be such a fitting symbol of the C64 scene, one of its most popular composers. And as I've talked about on my own show, Alex's show, and now this show, I'll always feel this really strange and sad connection to him because of what happened with his loss and with being his last interviewer and everything. I mean, it's not really that special, but it, it devastated me. And it'll always make him an unbelievable uh, presence in my mind. Absolutely, and understandably, and uh, you're, you're very welcome, <laughs> uh, and uh, thank you again for bringing, bringing this up, and you'll have to, we'll have to bring you back sometime. We can talk about just the C64 in general, we can talk about Rob Hubbard, Jerome Tell, I know that you're a huge fan of the work of David Wise, and um, so we definitely no shortage of oh, things yeah. for us to talk about, and uh, who knows, maybe after you come back, I, uh, like I can... I like just like you... Sorry, I'll I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, that's okay. Uh, do, do you want to go ahead with like a clear edit point? That, because know, there was can... a bit of lag there. <laughs> yeah, I, I can make this work in post, so that's fine. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Um, I actually can't remember, because uh, the whole thing confused <laughs> me. You know how that happens. Yep. Um, well, I was... Uh, saying who knows maybe when the sound test comes back i can return the favor and come uh, join you sometime that would be fun oh absolutely you'll be more than welcome my friend and the sound test i just want to say briefly is one of my favorite vgm podcasts i mentioned it on my tribute last year and uh, of course i'm a, a huge fan of the whole um scene but one of the things that sticks out to me about the sound test is just the the sort of documentary style presentation uh you do it's primarily an interview show except for the live shows and but instead of just the back and forth q a and then playing a few songs that you hear a lot on vgm podcast interviews or just where it's instead of just strictly 
a back and forth like you get on the AIS Game Maker's Notebook with Austin Wintry, you present it, you make a production out of it, and um, you like introduce it very well. You introduce the host, and then you sort of you'll you'll throw a question out, and then you bring on audio of the um, of the guest, not the host, the guest rather of the guest answering the question and talking. But it's um, again, really more of a documentary style presentation, and that's really refreshing. And you pepper it in with some really great music as well. And it's just um, while you're waiting, if anybody has not checked out the sound test before, while you're waiting on on Lee to be able to get back, there is a, a deep and rich well of content that you can go back and check out. And there will be a link, as I said, both to the podcast and to Lee's own uh, musical work in the show notes. So. Definitely want to go check that out. Oh, that's so fantastic. Thank you so much, man. You're very welcome, man. Is there anything else you would like to um, to talk about or or to plug on the show? Uh, No, I mean, uh, fortunately, I've been able to sneak in a little plug to my Spotify with Mutant Camels, so I don't even need to do (laughs) that. We're all good here. And uh, you've been so sweet about the sound test. I really appreciate that. So I don't think I've got any extra words to add there. Okay, well, I meant every word. So thanks again for being on the show. And uh, it's been a little bit of a long one because of some of the long tunes and just uh, the fact that you and I had so much to talk about. So I think we're ready to go ahead and wrap things up. So I guess all that's left is, uh, as always, until next time, play very good games. Be very good people. And keep listening to Very very Good good music. Music. Research for me, Bedroth. Make sure this is on the Amiga, <laughs> and, and don't worry about editing um, any stuff like that out because I don't mind being wrong and then like coming back to it and saying, <laughs> "Figured it out. It is the Amiga." Good That's deal. Fine. Yeah. You, usually, I I don't edit too much for content unless my uh, my guest says, "Hey, could you? Uh, this is off the record." Or, "Hey, could you leave that out?" So just let me know. Otherwise, I'll I'll keep it organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So far, there's nothing like I'm like embarrassed about. But the, the chron- chronolo- cr- chronologicalness of this, there's one for the brew. <laughs> Here we go. I've got so much I wanted to say, and I'm just holding it in until we actually start talking. Uh-huh. <laughs> no problem, man. Um, but you was hitting on something really interesting there. Can you, can you remind me of what you just said? My head's all over the place at the moment. It's still late. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Um, I So I was talking about the... Um, how Matt Gray was there in the 80s, uh, was also in, still involved in the music scene moving forward, and how this is really kind of sort of a mesh of sensibilities. And hearing those classic, uh, the chimey C64 trills and arpeggios. Yeah. That's it. Sorry about that, man. I got there. No, that's the okay. Album. I knew there was something I wanted to talk about. The <laughs> trills and arpeggios. Excuse me, dude. Just let me cough for a second. <laughs> I needed to do that throughout that whole thing, so I see, and then I'll continue on. 
I'm impressed. <laughs> the main theme from Alf We Descend Monty by both Rob Hubbard and Bed. Uh, let me do that again. <laughs> we will have some blooper reels. That's one for the. <laughs> yeah. I know I'd make a mistake eventually. Right. <laughs> let me get some of this mucus in place. <laughs> Sorry, dude, but it's the way it is. No, that's that's all right. <laughs> uh, a couple of uh, episodes ago, when we did the um, the Mitsuda episode, uh, was still getting over his COVID stuff, and he sounded he sounded pretty bad. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I'm ready to go. Okay, all right. All right. No, he'll be totally ready. friendly. Um, um, do me a favor before I jump into this one. Oh no, no, yes. it's okay. I, I'd, I'd forgotten what the next track was, but I know what it is now. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm interested to hear about this because this is quite a title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll get to that. Right. So where were we? The uh, main theme from the. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, I'm go ready ahead. to go. I don't play enough instruments with enough, um, uh, I am really having trouble thinking of my words today. Don't um, worry about it, man. <laughs> uh, enough expertise, I guess, is a close enough word to, um, have attempted a cover yet. <laughs> plays trumpet, plays flute, and he really wants us to try to put something together at some point, and I just haven't, I haven't buckled down and done it, but I should. It would be a really fun memory to make. Ba- bass is a good one to learn, man. Because, as I say, it is easy to learn. You can and you can really um, like tick along nicely on the bass without having to uh, put too much effort in. All right, and that is a wrap. 